Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. I like that you uh, refuse to call yourself a futurist. Uh, it makes me now want to reconsider my own title. Well, have, you, have you picked up on something that I haven't yet? No, you're, you, I, think, I think you're a good futurist. I don't think I'm a very good futurist. <laughs> and, um, and, and people often introduce me that way as a media futurist, and I just don't know what that means. Like, what, what, what would a media futurist be? To me, you know, is Snapchat the media future? It doesn't look like it, right? WeChat? Like, yeah, what is a media future? It, it's like using the word cyber. It kind of actually conjures up MP3s to me. Cyber certainly conjures that up, exactly. <laughs> The first wave of VRML, right? I, I, I like that we've got to this point where all of that sort of techno-utopianism of the early 90s, and I'm thinking like Sony's purple and chrome design, is now almost starting to look hip again. Retro, exactly right. It's true. And old games, old video games are back. I love that. Yeah, we're recycling old well, means. You mean Stranger Things. I mean, we're, we're, they're selling nostalgia back to us on streaming platforms. I'm hanging out actually in LACMA uh, on quite a chilly early evening in Los Angeles with Rob Turchin. Hi. Good to see you. I'm happy to be here. Rob, as I'm sure many of you listeners know, is the author of a wonderful book, uh, Vaporized. Uh, he's had a very long and distinguished career doing lots of interesting things in media companies and technology companies. And, you know, we're just shooting the breeze today. <laughs> it's fun to be here. It's a cool place to be. When's the last time you were here at LACMA? I've been here a number of times. I've been dragged to do photos, of course, in the front section. And so it's like a microcosm of Los Angeles, right? So LA is known as you know the fragmented city that's dispersed across 60 miles and there's no real center to it. And uh, this is the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So it's not the city museum of art, it's the county museum of art, already strange, right? And it's meant to serve this broad area, 100 miles of, of county and a very diverse community. And so where we're sitting right now is outside, in between two of the buildings, they're called pavilions because it's not one central museum building. So unlike most museums where there's like, you know, a central old-fashioned <laughs> museum, here you've got a collection of buildings and they're kind of loosely connected with walkways and and, uh, and tunnels and so forth. And um, in a way, it's a microcosm of L.A. So, so what you'll notice here is that they have something for each cultural group in L.A. So there's always Pacific art. There's always Latin American or Mexican art. There always is some kind of Asian art on display. There's always something related to media and entertainment. And so it's a modern art museum or a contemporary art museum with a historical art museum as well, a classical art. But then they have these rotating shows that emphasize the culture. The other thing they do here that's cool is they have satellite exhibitions that go into the schools. So they put the art where the people are. It's a fascinating idea, right? It's like this, distributed, this, distributed museum. This is also a microcosm of, of what's going on in the tech and media community because San Francisco was long sort of considered the center of gravity for technology in the last you know, 15, 20, maybe 30 years. But LA is now the rising star because of the, the new importance of digital content. And LA is one of them, but so is Beijing and Shanghai, well, and so yeah. is Singapore, so is Manchester in the UK. So innovation has been dispersed. And it's true, in the past, if you were an innovator, you had to go to Silicon Valley. But now the cost of living there is so high that it's actually driven up, driven up the cost of innovation. One of the most notable things, you know, about a third of the CEOs of Silicon Valley companies come from Asia, either from China or India, typically. And now there's a huge number of Indian entrepreneurs who are returning to India because the cost <laughs> of innovation in Silicon Valley is so high. So this is cool. You can do now we can talk about placeless innovation and we have communication tools that are so reliable 
that you don't even need your whole team together. I'm working on three placeless companies right now where we have teams that collaborate, but the, you know, some of the coders are in Eastern Europe, others are in Asia. The development goes on 24 hours a day. There's no real headquarters. It's a little weird because what do you put on a business card? Who has a business card anymore? <laughs> let's, let's talk a little, you know, one of the things we were chatting about earlier um, when we were sort of mapping this out was around the impact of artificial intelligence and data and algorithms and how it intersects with inequality. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the fact that we're here in a place which represents such diversity is interesting. But I mean, one of the, the greatest train wrecks I think we face as a society is massive amounts of technological innovation and the wealth that generates. And yet, if you walk around San Francisco, you know, you've got people trying to solve world scale problems, but right at their doorstep, there's homeless people. They're stepping over homeless people, yeah, yeah on their way to go invent some new transportation yeah. system. It seems, and yet, as you say, none of them have ever caught public transport. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the irony abounds. So, the, the, you know, you can tease apart the issue of um, inequality. Income inequality is a gigantic problem. It's not necessarily just a tech problem. Um, it appears to be increasing in almost every Western democracy. So it's not just a U.S. situation either. We're seeing this happen all over the world. Um, and you have people on Twitter now calling for 70% tax, which... Naturally, there's a backlash, right? <laughs> and by the way, you know, there's an argument we're having right now, which is a very interesting argument. Why do we need billionaires? Why do we need a billionaire? Because think about it, Mike. If you had $100 million, pretty much every need you could possibly conceive of, and your children's and their children's and their children's needs, would be well satisfied with $100 million. So why do we need billionaires? Is it the best way to run a society where a handful of oligarchs get to use their cash to influence government, create foundations that promote the causes they care about, back the education system that they think makes the most sense, it's cast in their image. So income inequality is a problem for Western democracy. It really is. And it ultimately concentrates wealth in a way that doesn't necessarily stifle debate, but it gives a preponderance of weight to certain kinds of speech from certain kinds of people. That's not great for democracy. So we have that problem. Now I add the tech piece. So technology, we've always been raised to believe the internet's a great leveler, right? It's a great democratizer. And we talk about democratizing technology and so forth. The issue I start to see now with these uh, globe-spanning media giants and technology giants is that the access is starting to dry up. And uh, probably the, the white-hot center of that argument would be artificial intelligence because you need such great computing resources, such great uh, um, algorithms, and access to giant data sets that AI is not something that's universally available, even though there's a lot of open source platforms. Well, this was Bernier's argument that access to AI should be a human right. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I sort of disagree with that on so many <laughs> levels. But a, but a great headline, you know. Yeah, I know, but because it, it, it sort of assumes that it, it is just like water. But yeah. of course, as you, as you inferred before, AI, it, it doesn't just work by magic. It works inference from data. Yeah. And, and you could easily make an argument that we that protection from AI's surveillance should be a universal right. You could make that argument. Um, and many, many people are, you know, have raised the alarm about uh, surveillance society. I share that concern. I've written about that a bit. Um, on the other hand, before we condemn AI, let's no. take a look at the benefits, right? So continuous ambient monitoring is the phrase we use to describe positive surveillance, right? Continuous ambient monitoring. And actually now there are technologies that will monitor people 
for heart conditions, blood rate, um, they can detect any kind of un abnormal behaviors if someone has an accident or falls or gets sick or something. They'll yeah. be able to de detect that. Well, e even even today, your Apple Watch can detect if you've had precisely a, if you've had a dramatic fall. Call no, authorities. And and uh, then you know the generation four Apple Watch now has the EKG built into it. Yeah. So Apple now calls this the largest clinical trial in history because they have three million people participating, sharing healthcare data, and it won't be unusual in a few years to be wearing one of those. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm 55 years old, so I'm I'm in the exactly right age to get one of these Apple Watches because um, in a couple of years, it wouldn't be a surprise to get a notice sent to me and to my doctor that says, we've noticed other people who have who demonstrate this pattern in a couple of years, their, their health deteriorates. So you might want to take some action for that. This is a great example of continuous ambient monitoring in a positive way. Wow. What comes with that, of course, is they're tracking every single minute you move around and, and every single thing you do. They also message your insurance company. This is a problem. This is a problem if you don't have universal health care coverage, which we don't have well, in the United States. I mean, you know, let, let's link this back to inequality because there's certainly a, an argument that if you're going to build a society where people have a high quality of life, they live longer, they've got access to education and services, you're going to absolutely need machine learning and AI platforms to do it because there's no other way to deliver highly personalized, tailored services at scale at a reasonable cost. Yeah. Yeah, the issue there is everyone who buys into the capitalist system is going to believe, has been accustomed to believing that growth, eternal growth, endless growth is the key to success and prosperity. Um, now, there's some people who challenge that idea as well, right? So you, you, particularly in the UK, there's some very interesting books that have been written on the subject that challenge the idea of perpetual growth as a concept for a society, because eventually, you know, can we keep growing? If you want to grow, the place we've had trouble, um, it, industry, manufacturing, has gotten incredibly efficient. Uh, distribution has gotten incredibly efficient. Even retail is improving. The place that hasn't improved at all in the last 20 years is productivity, human labor. We haven't been able to squeeze more productivity growth out of labor. So this is why this we is, have to robotize. That's the argument. That's the argument. But, but I mean, the, the big problem is, is that, and the question is, is whether we're actually measuring productivity correctly. Fair. Okay, great point. And yeah. the topic of a, a future book, I'm sure, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is, it's been this long debate, why do we not see the technology revolution in productivity statistics? And the thing is, if you look at an aggregate, it doesn't make sense. But there are these outliers which are really fascinating in that, um, you know, Kylie Jenner starts a billion dollar lipstick company with 15 people. WhatsApp sells for $20 billion with 50 people. I mean, the reality is you can set up fashion brands and telcos with a handful of number of people using shared infrastructure, using more lightweight True. people. True. And a lot of automated systems behind them, right? So they're, um, those startup companies, you know, the, the, the rap on technology companies is that they create great wealth without creating many jobs. So it's not actually, actually true. Uh, they do create jobs. They just don't create jobs for humans. They create a lot of jobs for algorithms. So you know, since the 2008 meltdown, the big shift has been towards software systems and relying more and more on software automation. We think about robots, you know, everybody's worried about robots. You see a lot of news or headlines uh, or books, frankly, that, that create this kind of like fear of robots, the robot apocalypse, the robots will steal your job. It's not robots you need to be worried about. It's software automation, which is far vaster. It's the part of the iceberg yeah, that's under the water. Absolutely, robotic process automation. And, and actually, yeah. you know, what would concern me more than losing my job to automation or an algorithm is having my job transformed by an algorithm so that I'm now working for an automated system. Which is what happens if you're an Uber driver. Well, that's exactly right. right. But that's that's really a forerunner for a, a future workplace where yeah. you've got a 
let's call it an ambient system that's monitoring your performance. And yeah. it's constantly emailing you and nudging you to behave in different ways. Exactly right. And there's no hiding from the system like that. It's truly merciless. That's true. Uh, when I worked in Hong Kong, I had um, they had keystroke <laughs> loggers on all the computers right. to see. Literally, they were measuring. They were trying to measure productivity by how many keys you would touch, and then they would take the computer off your desk if you weren't using it enough. Now we were editing, so sometimes we'd be in the edit Where bay. Were you I worked for Star TV. No, it was the most absurd situation. I didn't know that. So we had interns. No, I used to work for Star TV. Oh my lord! When were you there? I was there in 1991, 92, right when they launched. Right. I launched MTV there. We had interns come in just to hit the keys on the keyboard so they didn't take our computers off our desks. <laughs> it was the most absurd workaround you could imagine. Well, so um, you hired people to actually tap your mm -hmm. keyboards? Just to keep the computers on the desk so they didn't like the, so that, like the, the finance department didn't come <laughs> seize the equipment off of our desks. So silly. So I think you find people will figure out ways to work around those automated systems in very creative and unexpected ways. Um, one of the problems with these centralized systems is just like any centralized economy, they tend to go wrong in unexpected ways. Humans who plan them can't pre-plan every single thing. Learning systems, on the other hand, might adapt. Maybe it'll be better. Maybe what will happen is we'll have learning systems that know us so well that they can predict when we're gonna go wrong and they can start to make recommendations. Now here, back to your productivity statistics. Um, you know, there's a lot of AI in healthcare. I think in terms of AI investment, investment in artificial intelligence and machine learning, the majority of it has been in healthcare. But most of that will go towards preventing disease. This is a very difficult thing to measure. So back to productivity statistics, how do you measure the payoff of an AI that prevents you from entering the healthcare system? You know, from a GDP standpoint, if you go into healthcare and you consume all sorts of services and get all yeah, sorts yeah. of dust, and uh, that's great for GDP. If you stay healthy, that's terrible for GDP. So here's another example of like measuring the wrong thing and possibly coming out with the wrong policy. Well, it's, it's like why being in a state of continuous war is actually yeah, exactly. good, good for growth. Right. Make a lot of stuff and blow it all up. Yeah, Make yeah. more, yeah. But, but Which we do, we've been doing since the beginning of this century. You know, the, the United States has been at war continuously in multiple countries since the beginning of the century. It's really... It's the military industrial complex. It's really weird, isn't it? What, what frightens me most, though, about this algorithmic workplace of the future is that you're really going to have a, a bifurcation between people that are working essentially for algorithms. So it's the kind of the Uber yeah. driver in a bunch of different professions, whether they're you know, technicians in a hospital, to yeah. people stacking things in a warehouse. That's right. They're doing things that cannot be automated. They require some sort of meat interface. But it's a terrible job. It's a terrible job. And then you've got the very small... You're basically the, the servo and the actuator yeah. for a robot, right? For, for a robot well, brain. For something that's... You, it's cheaper to use you than actually some yeah. sort of industrial robot. Exactly. And, and you know uh, that your battery doesn't have to get charged more than once, yeah, once a day. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think there, there, there'll be an equation for that. <laughs> That's a very dark view. <laughs> but there's going to be a small professional class of people that don't work for the algorithms. They work on the algorithms. And this is almost like your, you know, scribe class in ancient Egypt. Right. You know, who, who are te technocrats and professionals. Yeah, and, technological priests. And, I think and, that makes sense. And, and sure. they're, they're reasonably well remunerated for that. But even then, there's going to be a huge gap between those people and the people that essentially own the platforms, right. own the algorithms, and, and that'll be, you know, feudal feudal style wealth. This is a concern, and if you they'll, look they'll have left those people would have left America to by the by the way to get away from the, you know, five percent wealth tax. It gets even weirder. So now imagine robot corporations. Right. You remember a couple of years ago you heard like about these the, Dow, de the Dow decentralized. The, yeah, the decentralized autonomous corporations. That didn't go so well. But that's just version 1.0. They're already working on another version of it, of course. The vision there, which I think is a very compelling vision, is to say, um, uh, you know, the fellow that created Ethereum uh, said, 
if you take a company's mission, like if you take their, their mission statement, you could probably write that in the form of software and you could probably write every job function. Now you don't need a company with a headquarters and a you know boardroom and a big marble lobby and you don't even need an office building. No, it's just smart contracts. All of that could be done with smart contracts, decentralized. The company itself would live on a thousand servers scattered across many different jurisdictions. They'd hire freelance people and freelance robots to do the actual tasks. So you can imagine, you know, how would you do marketing? Well, you know, that robot would send out a bid, hire a marketing agency, and then hire another one to vet the project. The, the, the problem with that is that you, you'd have to almost have a complete model of the universe in order to in order for that thing not right. break down at some point. We don't have an AI, a general AI that can manage across no, all those silos. There are point. some parts of organizations like procurement or commodities trading where there is enough of a fixed universe of definable rules where you could say we don't need a purchasing department anymore. We, we just need a DAO, DAO department that kind of runs it. And now think about this from a tax standpoint. So if you have a DAO that lives on a server, uh -huh. let's say thousands okay. of servers, and let's say, you know, somebody like Bill Gates comes along and says, tax the robots. That's what we're going to do to, to offset all these unemployed humans, uh, to pay for all the unemployed humans. Tax the robots. That DAO will probably relocate itself to a more friendly jurisdiction instantly. Of course. And so now you have this vision of the future where you've got like cloud-based robots running corporations, moving around constantly. But you're anthropomorphizing that. I sure have. No, no, no. Which I, I don't I don't think you need to do that for it to be terrifying because <laughs> I think it's fascinating. Because if you look at it, the, the ultra wealthy, as we talked about before, already use complex trusts and things like that. That's right. And they are multi-jurisdictional themselves. Yeah. So, That's so, right. so in a sense these trusts are um, autonomous um, lines of code. It's just that there are lawyers who've written these agreements and these trust agreements and, and their interactions. And so uh, even a seventy percent tax doesn't touch these people because they don't earn income. You know, everything has right. is, is been handed to another legal entity. Now, if you upgraded that to be essentially smart contracts, you could actually, even way beyond your death, have these systems operating fairly autonomously, generating and retaining wealth for thousands of years. You now, lay around the top of that vision, <laughs> the longevity <laughs> science that's happening, right. which will be accessible to guess who? The people with the money. Yeah. So now you have this concept of... Uh, ancient Methuselahs who've been around for generations, who've accumulated <laughs> astonishing amounts of wealth and control all the science and all the AI. Okay, we're now painting like kind of a William Gibson story here. No, I don't no, know. no, no, actually, no. I remember in 2005, um, I was at one of these early O'Reilly E-Tech conferences. Uh, you, do you remember E-Tech? And th these were amazing because uh, I remember you, you, it was be a bunch of nerds and geeks and people really doing stuff. And then you'd see Jeff Bezos just, you know, not speaking, just hanging out, talking to people. And I remember asking the organizer of this conference, I said, so what are you noticing? What are these guys secretly doing on the side, like with all their money? And he goes, they're all funding longevity labs out in the middle of the desert, super secret. They've all got to the point where there's nothing else to buy except more time. But, you know, you realize how much of our economic system relies on people dying. Yeah, that, that, you know, that's true. I mean, when you look at somewhere like Japan, yeah. Japan is what a society looks like where people live for a long time and they hold on to the wealth. And you get that stagnant system. Oh, that's where, a really where, interesting read on Japan. Okay. You know, the, so the, uh, they're hanging on to power, they're hanging on to wealth. Uh, they don't want to move things on to the next generation. And it creates a, this incredible... Um, There's a disillusionment among yeah, young people. Of course. And then they, be, they get dispersed to other places. They leave because there's no upward opportunity. That's oh, funny. I, when you said that, what it, what it caused me to think of, free associate to, is in the United States now... Um, Still, the majority of people get their health care from corporations. 
more than half. And if you have such a package, it's a pretty good healthcare system. If you don't, you're in jeopardy. Like if you're a freelance person like myself, you're self-employed, uh, you have to get out there and find a healthcare plan. It can be quite expensive. So, so if you have company-issued healthcare uh, or health insurance, that's quite a benefit. This has the perverse effect of decreasing labor mobility in the United States at a time when we should have greater labor mobility than ever before. Because right, people don't want to lose people the health are benefits. clinging to their jobs for the healthcare benefits. It's the best argument, I think, for um, universal healthcare as an economic stimulus. Everybody's looking at it as like socialism and so forth, and the critics are saying we can't afford to do it. But I'm actually thinking, no, if people could move from job to job without worrying about their healthcare benefits, uh, then actually I think you'd see a great opening up of the economy, a great freeing of creativity. Are you, are you a believer in a universal basic income on the same principle? No. So I have a problem with the universal basic income, uh, and I suspect that it's a libertarian plot to enslave people. And the reason I think that is, um, <laughs> you know, what what comes with, if let's say, let's say a country actually implemented a universal basic income. First of all, the amounts we're talking about are very tiny, $1,000 a month, $2,000 a month. You can't live on that. So that's no. problem number one. And they cut health care for the minute they... This is exactly what... So what is going to give... What, what are you going to minimize if you're going to create that new program? You're going to cut all of the support systems. So now there's only one thing for ultra-conservative people to focus on cutting. It's the universal basic income. And you give them this enormous lever to control a large chunk of the population. I just don't trust our political system here enough to give anyone access to that lever. <laughs> I'm slamming the libertarians. I probably shouldn't take after them, but they're such an easy target. You know, the big problem for me, and, and, and a, lot of, a lot of people... A lot of people like the idea of the UBI because they see it in the same context as a automated utopian technological society. Yeah, it's you know it's, where we don't have to work anymore and we just need a bit of pocket money to you know pursue our art career. But but the thing that I think is missed on all of that is the sense of purpose that we get from work. Yeah, that's I true. mean we don't just work to live; we work for a sense of identity, a sense of meaning, a sense of That's value. True. One of the arguments for the low amounts of money in the UBI is that it's a backstop. You're not meant to stop working. You just don't have to devote your entire life to working so that you could do creative work or you could do part-time work or you could do, you know, handmade things. I do see a rise in demand for handmade stuff, by the way, as we automate everything. Yeah. One of my theories, one of my operating theories is that we're going to place a greater value on, um, on wabi-sabi, handmade stuff that has flaws that robots can't imitate until they get good enough to imitate or predict the flaws that we make and then then but, but that's <laughs> no, still a hobby you, you know you, right. you, you can't certain. someone whose life life work was um, even working as an accountant you know helping people do that you can't just give them a, uh, give them a pot to make and say hmm. you know don't <laughs> we still see you as a valued member of society it is an interesting so reskilling people is a gigantic challenge it's here now right it's not some future thing what do you think i mean what do you think the most valuable people in the future are going to be. I, I mean, I, I think it's going to be laughable, this idea that if you can program or uh, uh, or if you can you know, s even set up a machine learning simulation, it's got to be something bigger than that because sure. all that stuff's going to go automated too. Uh, software almost certainly is going to be something that machines do, right? So yeah. there'll be people, as you said, who program the robots, sure, a small number of technological priests. But even programming languages will go away. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And, and future software, we won't be able to read. This is all, it will well, be this is it. readable. But uh, logic is still important. Yes. I think what humans are great at is making novel combinations and coming up with the next thing. 
like figuring out the next thing to apply technology to. I think we're quite good at that. And maybe robots can automate that as well because, gosh, you know, the, you already saw, I'm sure you saw the articles about the robots that can write articles that are so good that you can't detect the distinction. We're seeing robot generate, uh, but, but AIs these, But these are also articles about video. fairly banal stuff like exchange rates and right, that's market true. moves. Yeah, that's true. Which, okay. which were probably not actually written by but, real human but beings. But five or ten years out, you know, it'll get, <laughs> it'll get better and better. Um, anyway, I think that the, uh, what, what people seem to do very well is invent new needs for each other, things that we didn't know that we needed. Um, and you can see that at a craft fair or at a flea market or any place where people are doing artistic things for each other. Uh, you'll see something there that you, you find yourself attracted to that you didn't even know existed and you certainly didn't think you needed, but you wanted. I think this is something humans are quite good at. I think our ability to generate new needs, we underestimate that ability. And so it gives us you know, some sense of gloom and doom about the future because we think the only things that are gonna be made in the future is stuff that we already have. But just consider, in the last 10 years, since you got a modern smartphone, all the new stuff that you have in your life that's important to you, like Slack, <laughs> that simply was inconceivable 10 years ago, you know, or like having a phone, a camera on your phone. You know, like, like we were just hiking a moment ago and uh, taking pictures and, you know, you didn't have a, a camera on your phone 10 years ago. Or if you did, it was crappy, you know. Was, uh, I think you touch on something that's, that's integral to human nature. It's, it's like what the American Indians when they believed in the coyote, their coyote god, it's always got an empty belly. You know, the, yeah. The the, tri the trickster coyote is always like. Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Hungry. It's always hungry. Yeah, and, and, and being and, hungry is a great way to go through life. And that's a very human thing. Which so, is, so don't be satiated. Don't get too complacent. Don't settle. We're down. always looking for new stuff to want. Some people. Yeah. Some people just want to sit down and watch television. And you know, maybe that's not such a bad outcome. Maybe there is a group that's simply going to be sedated by technology and media in the future. I don't know if that's so terrible. It sounds awful to me, but there's a lot of people who do that to themselves every single night. So maybe that's their future. I, don't know. I think you're going to see in the future, people will have um, the positive view, the rosy view of the future is people have more individual choices and they'll have more uh, personal responsibility. Now, as I say that, I hesitate because, of course, one of the fears of the robots that can be is that they constrain you. You sound like one of the libertarians that you're No, exactly right. With. And then you know, where I was, I was heading a moment ago is if you travel outside the U.S., as you and I do, um, outside the U.S. and China, you find that the perception of AI and big data is not as positive as it is in these countries, the countries where we spend our time, because we have the technology, right? So I was just in Brazil, and one of the conversations I had there was about data colonialism, where huge amounts of data are siphoned from citizens of Brazil, but they're siphoned out by internet companies that are based in California, processed here, and then by AIs. And then the AI constrain the choices that the people, the citizens have in those countries. And how fair is that? And what benefit do they get? And please don't tell me about Gmail and free Google Docs and stuff, because that's not really an adequate transfer of value. You know, we suck up all your data. We know every detail of your life. We're going to automate the hell out of your life. We're going to constrain the choices that you get to see based on what our advertisers or our sponsors or our corporate partners feel is important to you. And in exchange, we're going to give you a way to do email and, and documents for free. It's not a fair trade. Anyway, so this idea of data colonialism and AI imperialism, I think is going to be a rising issue. Uh, you saw a little bit of that with Mark Benioff at, at the WEF, the, the World Economic Forum. Well, big big tech is going to be seen as big tobacco if they're not careful very soon. Yeah, and there's a bit of that happening under, already. Um, it's true. There's a rising wave of backlash. Now, this will be interesting because, as you know well, I'm sure, um, the history of regulation is the history of entrenching winners. So right now, the, the companies that spend the most on lobbying in the United States are the tech companies. 
15 years ago, they didn't spend anything on lobbying. They didn't go, they didn't spend time in Washington. Now they have huge armies of lobbyists. What they want to ensure is that when the regulation is written, it's written in their favor. But it's not just the domestic politics. It's, and I, and I think this is, this is going to be something happening in the very near future is AI nationalism. In, in that China is absolutely behind its own 100%. players as becoming AI global champions. That's exactly right. They see a chance to win. The, the Americans will we'll see the same thing eventually. They'll see this as a form of global competition. I mean, absolutely, when you look at the EU's regulations, some people will say they're acting on behalf of consumer rights. But there's another dimension to this where it is a form of uh, trade war. Sure. In particular, the, massive the, fines. the laws that require you to host the data on servers in that jurisdiction or yeah, in that country. It's a, it's a kind of it's digital an, protectionism. It's, it's a kind of protectionism, and it's a way to employ people and you know buy services and stuff in, the, in those countries. I don't have a real big issue with that because I think the data should belong to those citizens. The Chinese approach is quite interesting. So if, if, you're, if your listeners aren't familiar with that, I urge them to check out Made in China 2025. This is an initiative that was announced in 2015. It's very impressive in its scope. It's quite <laughs> controversial. It's a bit like the, the One Belt, One Road initiative, but that's, a, that's outbound. This is internal. Made in China 2025, uh, the Chinese government has decreed that China will be the world leader in a certain number of key industries. I think 10 or more uh, key industries. They include robotics and automation, artificial intelligence, 5G, Sol solar cells, solar cells uh, renewable energies, biopharma, synthetic biology. Uh, basically, the checklist of like every cool new technology that's out there. I think the perspective of China, remember, historically, they're very concerned about colonialism. They had a bad experience of colonialism. Uh, it was not a great outcome. And so their fear is that they don't the want to be receiving it. The, the opium wars. Exactly right. <laughs> bad history, right? So, so if you put yourself in, the, you know, in, in, in their shoes, you can, you can kind of imagine a perception that says, we don't want some outside country or company to tell us what we're going to do. And, um, and so therefore, we want to be masters of our destiny. I don't think it has to be more, you know, Machiavellian or nefarious than that simple idea that we want to control our own destiny. Um, and along the way, why not be number one? You know, um, you and I use the internet. We've been on the internet for many, many years, and we take it for granted. And when it isn't available, we get kind of anxious about it. For people outside of the tech countries or the highly industrialized countries, the internet is a way to be American. It's a way to think about things the way Americans think. And now, if you're an American, that sounds great. But if you're not an American, that might not sound so great. Particularly if you're a leader of another country, you might not like that too much. So I think where China's heading is an internet with Chinese characteristics. Yeah. And their goal in, in being at least competitive and 5G with these technologies. Could, could be the way they do that That's because exactly right. they'll be able to give countries the control to really throttle it off, to adjust it, to monitor it. Good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Baked into those, yeah, uh, those, into the those protocols. telecommunications Five 5G is not just faster broadband. It actually could be a different kind of internet. That's, that's a very good point. Uh, yeah, so there you have your Chinese, your, your internet with Chinese characteristics in the future. Uh, yeah, I think in the United States, we have the habit of bashing China often in the press. Our politicians do it all the time. It's a very easy target. But I think that's a very simplistic narrative. I think China's a lot more interesting than that. I don't think it's necessarily a threat, you know, if China prevails, is that necessarily a threat to the rest of the world? But just to, from the perspective of my visit recently to Brazil, there I said, you know, the two biggest trading partners in Brazil are China and the United States. And I said, isn't it weird that your choices of artificial intelligence are going to come from those two countries? And shouldn't there be a third option for everybody else in the world, not just Brazil? Is it, you know, isn't it unfair that you're limited to basically those two technologies from those two countries? 
Now, in the UK, there's a thriving AI development scene. A moment ago, we were talking about Brexit, and it might turn the UK, you know, everyone who's in favor of Brexit, I'm not, but everybody who is, uh, they're saying it'll be an island of opportunity, and it'll be the free trade island, and so forth. Some kind of glorified Hong Kong, you know, maybe. Um, with artificial intelligence, there's a real possibility that that could happen in the UK. And the reason is that the EU seems to be de determined, I mean hell-bent, to regulate AI in a way that will probably stifle innovation and drive the innovation outside of the borders of the EU. And it's actually notable to think that you know, there haven't really been that many standout successes in digital technology in Europe. Uh, you've had um, SAP in Germany, you know, but like what else is going on in Germany? In Berlin, this, this famous, you know, internet incubators they have in Berlin, SoundCloud, like they're practically bankrupt. Yeah, it's just not a very impressive track record, is it? So there's a problem with innovation in this domain in the EU, and I think it pertains or is connected to regulation. So here I am, actually, you know, the critic of the libertarians talking about a deregulated marketplace for innovation. <laughs> You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.